Thursday. There was a newcomer in the village. New people were always a source of interest and speculation among the them, but this time Pepper had impressive news. Footnote. It didn't matter what the four had called their gang over the years, the frequent name changes usually being prompted by whatever Adam had happened to have read or viewed the previous day. The Adam Young Squad, Adam and Company, the Hole in the Chalk Gang, the Really Well-Known Four, the Legion of Really Superheroes, the Quarry Gang, the Secret Four, the Justice Society of Tadfield, the Galaxatrons, the Four Just Persons, the Rebels. Everyone else always referred to them darkly as them, and eventually they did too. She's moved into Jasmine Cottage and she's a witch, she said. I know because Mrs. Henderson does the cleaning and she told my mother she gets a witch's newspaper. She gets loads of ordinary newspapers too, but she gets the special witch's one. My father says there's no such thing as witches, said Wensleydale, who had fair wavy hair and peered seriously out at life through thick black-rimmed spectacles. It was widely believed that he had once been christened Jeremy, but no one ever used the name, not even his parents, who called him Youngster. They did this in the subconscious hope that he might take the hint. Wensleydale gave the impression of having been born with a mental age of 47. Don't see why not, said Brian, who had a wide, cheerful face under an apparently permanent layer of grime. I don't see why witches shouldn't have their own newspaper, with stories about all the latest spells in that. My father gets Angler's Mail, and I bet there's more witches than Angler's. It's called Psychic News, volunteered Pepper. That's not witches, said Wensleydale. My aunt has that. That's just spoon-bending and fortune-telling and people thinking they were Queen Elizabeth I in another life. There's no witches anymore, actually. People invented medicines in that and told them they didn't need them anymore and started burning them. They could have pictures of frogs and things, said Brian, who was reluctant to let a good idea go to waste. And and road tests of broomsticks, and a cat's column. Anyway, your aunt could be a witch, said Pepper, in secret. She could be your aunt all day and go witching at night. Not my aunt, said Wensleydale darkly. And recipes, said Brian, new uses for leftover toad. Oh, shut up, said Pepper. Brian snorted. If it had been Wensley who had said that, there'd have been a half-hearted scuffle as between friends. But the other them had long ago learned that Pepper did not consider herself bound by the informal conventions of brotherly scuffles. She could kick and bite with astonishing physiological accuracy for a girl of eleven. Besides, at eleven years old, the them were beginning to be bothered by the dim conception that laying hands on good old Pep moved things into blood-thumping categories they weren't entirely at home with yet, besides earning you a snake-fast blow that would have floored the Karate Kid. But she was good to have in your gang. They remembered with pride the time when Greasy Johnson and his gang had taunted them for playing with a girl. Pepper had erupted with a fury that had caused Greasy's mother to come round that evening and complain. Footnote. Greasy Johnson was a sad and oversized child. There's one in every school. Not exactly fat, but simply huge and wearing almost the same size clothes as his father. Paper tore under his tremendous fingers, pens shattered in his grip. Children whom he tried to play with in quiet, friendly games ended up getting under his huge feet, and Greasy Johnson had become a bully almost in self-defense. After all, it was better to be called a bully, which at least implied some sort of control and desire, than to be called a big clumsy oaf. 
He was the despair of the sportsmaster, because if Gracie Johnson had taken the slightest interest in sport, then the school could have been champions. But Gracie Johnson had never found a sport that suited him. He was instead secretly devoted to his collection of tropical fish, which won him prizes. Greasy Johnson was the same age as Adam Young, to within a few hours, and his parents had never told him he was adopted. See? You were right about the babies. Pepper looked upon him, a giant male, as a natural enemy. She herself had short red hair and a face which was not so much freckled as one big freckle with occasional areas of skin. Pepper's given first names were Pippin Galadriel Moonchild. She had been given them in a naming ceremony in a muddy valley field that contained three sick sheep and a number of leaky polythene teepees. Her mother had chosen the Welsh valley of Pantigirdle as the ideal site to return to nature. Six months later, sick of the rain, the mosquitoes, the men, the tent-trampling sheep who ate first the whole commune's marijuana crop and then its antique minibus, and by now beginning to glimpse why almost the entire drive of human history has been an attempt to get as far away from nature as possible, Pepper's mother returned to Pepper's surprised grandparents in Tadfield, bought a bra, and enrolled in a sociology course with a deep sigh of relief. There are only two ways a child can go with a name like Pippin Galadriel Moonchild, and Pepper had chosen the other one. The three male them had learned this on their first day of school in the playground at the age of four. They had asked her her name, and, all innocent, she had told them. Subsequently, a bucket of water had been needed to separate Pippin Galadriel Moonchild's teeth from Adam's shoe. Wensleydale's first pair of spectacles had been broken, and Brian's sweater needed five stitches. The them were together from then on, and Pepper was Pepper forever, except to her mother, and, when they were feeling especially courageous and the them were almost out of earshot, Greasy Johnson and the Johnsonites, the village's only other gang. Adam drummed his heels on the edge of the milk crate that was doing the office of a seat, listening to this bickering with the relaxed air of a king listening to the idle chatter of his courtiers. He chewed lazily on a straw. It was a Thursday morning. The holidays stretched ahead, endless and unsullied. They needed filling up. He let the conversation float around him like the buzzing of grasshoppers, or, more precisely, like a prospector watches the churning gravel for a glint of useful gold. In our Sunday paper, it said there was thousands of witches in the country, said Brian, worshipped nature and eating health food and that, so I don't see why we shouldn't have one round here. They were flooding the country with a wave of mindless evil, it said. What, by worshipping nature and eating health food, said Wensleydale. That's what it said. The them gave this due consideration. They had once, at Adam's instigation, tried a health food diet for a whole afternoon. Their verdict was that you could live very well on healthy food, provided you had a big cooked lunch beforehand. Brian leaned forward conspiratorially. And it said they dance round with no clothes on, he added. They go up on hills and Stonehenge and stuff and dance with no clothes on. This time the consideration was more thoughtful. The them had reached that position where, as it were, the roller coaster of life had almost completed the long haul to the top of the first big humpback of puberty, so that they could just look down into the precipitous ride ahead, full of mystery, terror, and exciting curves. Huh, said Pepper. Not my aunt, said Wensleydale, breaking the spell. Definitely not my aunt. 
She just keeps trying to talk to my uncle. Your uncle's dead, said Pepper. She says he still moves a glass about, said Wensleydale defensively. My father says it was moving glasses about the whole time that made him dead in the first place. Don't know why she wants to talk to him, he added. They never talked much when he was alive. That's necromancy, that is, said Brian. It's in the Bible. She ought to stop it. God's dead against necromancy. And witches. You can go to hell for it. There was a lazy shifting of position on the milk crate throne. Adam was going to speak. The them fell silent. Adam was always worth listening to. Deep in their hearts, the them knew that they weren't a gang of four. They were a gang of three, which belonged to Adam. But if you wanted excitement and interest and crowded days, then every them would prize a lowly position in Adam's gang above leadership of any other gang anywhere. Don't see why everyone's so down on witches, Adam said. The them glanced at one another. This sounded promising. Well, they blight crops, said Pepper, and sink ships, and tell you if you're going to be king and stuff, and brew up stuff with herbs. My mother uses herbs, says Adam. So does yours. Oh, those are all right, said Brian, determined not to lose his position as a cult expert. I expect God said it was all right to use mint and sage and so on. Stands to reason there's nothing wrong with mint and sage. And they can make you be ill just by looking at you, said Pepper. It's called the evil eye. They give you a look, and then you get ill, and no one knows why. And they make a model of you and stick it full of pins, and you get ill where all the pins are, she added cheerfully. That sort of thing doesn't happen anymore, reiterated Wensleydale, the rational thinking person, because we invented science, and all the vicars set fire to the witches for their own good. It was called the Spanish Inquisition. Then I reckon we should find out if her at Jasmine Cottage is a witch, and if she is, we should tell Mr. Pickersgill, said Brian. Mr. Pickersgill was the vicar. Currently, he was in dispute with the them over subjects ranging from climbing the yew tree in the churchyard to ringing the bells and running away. I don't reckon it's allowed going round setting fire to people, said Adam. Otherwise, people'd be doing it all the time. It's all right if you're religious, said Brian, reassuringly, and it stops the witches from going to hell, so I expect they'd be quite grateful if they understood it properly. Can't see Picky setting fire to anyone, said Pepper. Oh, I don't know, said Brian, meaningfully. Not actually setting them on actual fire, sniffed Pepper. He's more likely to tell their parents and leave it up to them if anyone's going to be set on fire or not. The them shook their heads in disgust at the current low standards of ecclesiastical responsibility. Then the other three looked expectantly at Adam. They always looked expectantly at Adam. He was the one that had the ideas. Perhaps we ought to do it ourselves, he said. Someone ought to be doing something if there's all these witches about. It's it's like that neighborhood watch scheme. Neighborhood witch, said Pepper. No, said Adam coldly. But we can't be the Spanish Inquisition, said Wentfordale. We're not Spanish. I bet you don't have to be Spanish to be the Spanish Inquisition, said Adam. I bet it's like Scottish eggs or American hamburgers. It just has to look Spanish. We've just got to make it look Spanish. Then everyone would know it's the Spanish Inquisition. There was silence. It was broken by the crackling of one of the empty crisp packets that accumulated wherever Brian was sitting. They looked at him. I've got a bullfight poster with my name on it, said Brian slowly. Lunchtime came and went. The new Spanish Inquisition reconvened. The head inquisitor inspected it critically. What are those? he demanded. 
You click them together when you dance, said Wensleydale, a shade defensively. My aunt brought them back from Spain years ago. They called maracas, I think. They've got a picture of a Spanish dancer on them. Look. What's she dancing with a bull for, said Adam. That's to show it's Spanish, said Wensleydale. Adam let it pass. The bullfight poster was everything Brian had promised. Pepper had something rather like a gravy boat made out of raffia. It's for putting wine in, she said defiantly. My mother brought it back from Spain. It hasn't got a bull on it, said Adam severely. It doesn't have to, Pepper counted, moving just ever so slightly into a fighting stance. Adam hesitated. His sister Sarah and her boyfriend had also been to Spain. Sarah had returned with a very large purple toy donkey, which, while definitely Spanish, did not come up to what Adam instinctively felt should be the tone of the Spanish Inquisition. The boyfriend, on the other hand, had brought back a very ornate sword, which, despite its tendency to bend when picked up and go blunt when asked to cut paper, proclaimed itself to be made of Toledo steel. Adam had spent an instructive half-hour with the encyclopedia and felt that this was just what the Inquisition needed. Subtle hints had not worked, however. In the end, Adam had taken a bunch of onions from the kitchen. They might well have been Spanish. But even Adam had to concede that, as decor for the inquisitorial premises, they lacked that certain something. He was in no position to argue too vehemently about raffia wine holders. Very good, he said. You certain they're Spanish onions, said Pepper, relaxing. Course, said Adam. Spanish onions. Everyone knows that. They could be French, said Pepper doggedly. France is famous for onions. It doesn't matter, said Adam, who was getting fed up with onions. France is nearly Spanish, and I don't expect witches know the difference, what with spending all their time flying around at night. It all looks like the continent to witches. Anyway, if you don't like it, you can jolly well go and start your own inquisition anyway. For once, Pepper didn't push it. She'd been promised the post of head torturer. No one doubted who was going to be chief inquisitor. Wensleydale and Brian were less enthralled with their roles of inquisitorial guards. Well, you don't know any Spanish, said Adam, whose lunch hour had included ten minutes with a phrase book Sarah had bought in a haze of romanticism in Alicante. That doesn't matter because actually you have to talk in Latin, said Wensleydale, who had also been doing some slightly more accurate lunchtime reading. And Spanish, said Adam firmly. That's why it's the Spanish Inquisition. Don't see why it shouldn't be a British Inquisition, said Brian. Don't see why we should have fought the Armada and everything just to have their smelly Inquisition. This had been slightly bothering Adam's patriotic sensibilities as well. I reckon, he said, that we should sort of start Spanish and then make it the British Inquisition when we got the hang of it. And now, he added, the Inquisitorial Guard will go and fetch the first witch, por favor. The new inhabitant of Jasmine Cottage would have to wait, they decided. What they needed to do was start small and work their way up. Art thou a witch, O Lay? said the chief inquisitor. Yes, said Pepper's little sister, who was six and built like a small golden-haired football. You mustn't say yes, you've got to say no, hissed the head torturer, nudging the suspect. And then what? demanded the suspect. And then we torture you to make you say yes, said the head torturer. I told you, it's good fun, the torturing. It doesn't hurt. Hasta la visa, she added quickly. The little suspect gave the decor of the inquisitorial headquarters a disparaging look. There was a decided odour of onions. 
Ha, she said. I want to be a witch with a warty nose and a green skin and a lovely cat and I'd call it Blackie and lots of potions and... The head torturer nodded to the chief inquisitor. Look, said Pepper desperately, no one's saying you can't be a witch. You just have to say you're not a witch. No point in us taking all this trouble, she added severely, if you're going to go around saying yes the minute we ask you. The suspect considered this. But I want to be a witch, she wailed. The male them exchanged exhausted glances. This was out of their league. If you just say no, said Pepper, you can have my Cindy stable set. I've never even used it, she added, glaring at the other them and daring them to make a comment. You have used it, snapped her sister. I've seen it, and it's all worn out, and the bit where you put the hay is broke, and... Adam gave a magisterial cough. Art thou a witch, viva espana, he repeated. The sister took a look at Pepper's face and decided not to chance it. No, she decided. It was a very good torture, everyone agreed. The trouble was getting the putative witch off it. It was a hot afternoon, and the inquisitorial guards felt that they were being put upon. Don't see why me and Brother Brian should have to do all the work, said Brother Wensleydale, wiping the sweat off his brow. I reckon it's about time she got off and we had a go. Benedictine in a decanter. Why have we stopped? demanded the suspect, water pouring out of her shoes. It had occurred to the chief inquisitor during his researches that the British Inquisition was probably not yet ready for the reintroduction of the Iron Maiden and the Choke Pair, but an illustration of a medieval ducking stool suggested that it was tailor-made for the purpose. All you needed was a pond and some planks and a rope. It was the sort of combination that always attracted the them, who never had much difficulty in finding all three. The suspect was now green to the waist. It's just like a seesaw, she said. Whee! I'm going to go home unless I can have a go, muttered Brother Brian. Don't see why evil witches should have all the fun. It's not allowed for inquisitors to be tortured too, said the chief inquisitor sternly, but without much real feeling. It was a hot afternoon, the inquisitorial robes of old sacking were scratchy and smelled of stale barley, and the pond looked astonishingly inviting. All right, all right, he said, and turned to the suspect. You're a witch, all right, don't do it again, and now you get off and let someone else have a turn. Olay, he added. What happens now? said Pepper's sister. Adam hesitated. Setting fire to her would probably cause no end of trouble, he reasoned. Besides, she was too soggy to burn. He was also distantly aware that at some future point there would be questions asked about muddy shoes and duckweed-encrusted pink dresses. But that was the future, and it lay at the other end of a long, warm afternoon that contained planks and ropes and palms. The future could wait. The future came and went in the mildly discouraging way that futures do, although Mr. Young had other things on his mind apart from muddy dresses and merely banned Adam from watching television, which meant he had to watch it on the old black and white set in his bedroom. I don't see why we should have a hosepipe ban, Adam heard Mr. Young telling Mrs. Young. I pay my rates like everyone else. The garden looks like the Sahara Desert. I'm surprised there was any water left in the pond. I blame it on the lack of nuclear testing myself. You used to get proper summers when I was a boy. It used to rain all the time. Now, Adam slouched alone along the dusty lane. It was a good slouch. 
Adam had a way of slouching along that offended all right-thinking people. It wasn't just that he allowed his body to droop. He could slouch with inflections, and now the set of his shoulders reflected the hurt and bewilderment of those unjustly thwarted in their selfless desire to help their fellow men. Dust hung heavy on the bushes. Serve everyone right if the witches took over the whole country and made everyone eat health food and not go to church and dance around with no clothes on, he said, kicking a stone. He had to admit that, except perhaps for the health food, the prospect wasn't too worrying. I bet if they just let us get started properly, we could have found hundreds of witches, he told himself, kicking a stone. I bet old torture martyr didn't have to give up just when he was getting started, just because some stupid witch got a dress dirty. Dog slouched along dutifully behind his master. This wasn't, insofar as the hellhound had any expectations, what he had imagined life would be like in the last days before Armageddon, but despite himself, he was beginning to enjoy it. He heard his master say, but even the Victorians didn't force people to have to watch black and white television. Form shapes nature. There are certain ways of behavior appropriate to small scruffy dogs, which are in fact welded into the genes. You can't just become small dog-shaped and hope to stay the same person. A certain intrinsic small dogness begins to permeate your very being. He'd already chased a rat. It had been the most enjoyable experience of his life. Serve him right if we're all overcome by evil forces, his master grumbled. And then there were cats, thought Dog. He'd surprised the huge ginger cat from next door and had attempted to reduce it to cowering jelly by means of the usual glowing stare and deep-throated growl, which had always worked on the damned in the past. This time, they earned him a whack on the nose that had made his eyes water. Cats, Dog considered, were clearly a lot tougher than lost souls. He was looking forward to a further cat experiment, which he'd planned would consist of jumping around and yapping excitedly at it. It was a long shot, but it might just work. They just better not come running to me when old Picky has turned into a frog, that's all, muttered Adam. It was at this point that two facts dawned on him. One was that his disconsolate footsteps had led him past Jasmine Cottage. The other was that someone was crying. Adam was a soft touch for tears. He hesitated a moment, and then cautiously peered over the hedge. To Anathema, sitting in a deck chair and halfway through a packet of Kleenex, it looked like the rise of a small, dishevelled sun. Adam doubted that she was a witch. Adam had a very clear mental picture of a witch. The youngs restricted themselves to the only possible choice amongst the better class of Sunday newspaper, and so a hundred years of enlightened occultism had passed Adam by. She didn't have a hooked nose or warts, and she was young. Well, quite young. That was good enough for him. Hello, he said, unslouching. She blew her nose and stared at him. What was looking over the hedge should be described at this point. What Anathema saw was, she said later, something like a prepubescent Greek god. Or maybe a biblical illustration, one which showed muscular angels doing some righteous smiting. It was a face that didn't belong in the 20th century. It was thatched with golden curls which glowed. Michelangelo should have sculpted it. He probably would not have included the battered trainer's frayed jeans or grubby t-shirt, though. Who are you? she said. I'm Adam Young, said Adam. I live just down the lane. Oh, yes, I've heard of you, said Anathema, dabbing at her eyes. Adam preened. Mrs. Henderson said I was to be sure to keep an eye out for you, she went on. I'm well known around here, said Adam. 
She said you were born to hang, said Anathema. Adam grinned. Notoriety wasn't as good as fame, but it was heaps better than obscurity. She said you were worst of the lot of them, said Anathema, looking a little more cheerful. Adam nodded. She said, you watch out for them, miss. They're nothing but a pack of ringleaders. That young Adam's full of the old Adam, she said. What have you been crying for? said Adam bluntly. Oh, oh, I've just lost something, said Anathema. A book. I'll help you look for it if you like, said Adam gallantly. I know quite a lot about books, actually. I wrote a book once. It was a terrific book. It was nearly eight pages long. It was about this pirate who was a famous detective. And I drew the pictures. And then, in a flash of largesse, he added, If you like, I'll let you read it. I bet it was a lot more exciting than any book you've lost, especially the bit in the spaceship where the dinosaur comes out and fights with the cowboys. I bet it'd cheer you up, my book. It cheered up Brian no end. He said he'd never been so cheered up. Thank you. I'm sure your book is a very good book, she said, endearing herself to Adam forever. But I don't need you to help look for my book. I think it's too late now. She looked thoughtfully at Adam. I expect you know this area very well, she said. For miles and miles, said Adam. You haven't seen two men in a big black car, said Anathema. Did they steal it, said Adam, suddenly full of interest. Foiling a gang of international book thieves would make a rewarding end to the day. Not really, sort of. I mean, they didn't mean to. They were looking for the manor, but I went up there today and no one knows anything about them. There was some sort of accident or something, I believe. She stared at Adam. There was something odd about him, but she couldn't put her finger on it. She just had an urgent feeling that he was important and shouldn't be allowed to drift away. Something about him. What's the book called? said Adam. The Nice and Accurate Prophecies of Agnes Nutter, which, said Anathema. Which what? No, which, like in Macbeth, said Anathema. I saw that, said Adam. It was really interesting the way them kings carried on. Gosh, what's nice about him? Nice used to mean, well, precise or exact. Definitely something strange. A sort of laid-back intensity. You started to feel that if he was around, then everyone else, even the landscape, was just background. She'd been here a month. Except for Mrs. Henderson, who in theory looked after the cottage and probably went through her things, given half a chance, she hadn't exchanged more than a dozen real words with anyone. She let them think she was an artist. This was the kind of countryside that artists liked. Actually, it was bloody beautiful. Just around this village, it was superb. If Turner and Landseer had met Samuel Palmer in a pub and worked it all out, and then got Stubbs to do the horses, it couldn't have been better. And that was depressing, because this was where it was going to happen. According to Agnes, anyway. In a book which she, Anathema, had allowed to be lost. She had the file cards, of course, but they just weren't the same. If Anathema had been in full control of her own mind at that moment, and no one around Adam was ever in full control of his or her own mind, she'd have noticed that whenever she tried to think about him beyond a superficial level, her thoughts slipped away like a duck off water. Wicked, said Adam, who had been turning over in his mind the implications of a book of nice and accurate prophecies. It tells you who's going to win the Grand National, does it? No, said Anathema. Any spaceships in it? Not many, said Anathema. Robots, said Adam, hopefully. Sorry. Doesn't sound very nice to me, then, said Adam. Don't see what the future's got in it if there's no robots and spaceships. About three days, thought Anathema glumly. That's what it's got in it. Would you like a lemonade, she said. Adam hesitated. 
Then he decided to take the bull by the horns. Look, excuse me for asking, if it's not a personal question, but are you a witch, he said. Anathema narrowed her eyes. So much for Mrs. Henderson poking around. Some people might say so, she said. Actually, I'm an occultist. Oh, well, that's all right then, said Adam, cheering up. She looked him up and down. You know what an occultist is, do you? she said. Oh, yes, said Adam, confidently. Well, so long as you're happier now, said Anathema. Come on in. I could do with a drink myself. And Adam Young? Yes? You were thinking... Nothing wrong with my eyes. They don't need examining, weren't you? Who, me? said Adam guiltily. Dog was the problem. He wouldn't go in the cottage. He crouched on the doorstep, growling. Come on, you silly dog, said Adam. It's only old Jasmine Cottage. He gave Anathema an embarrassed look. Normally he does everything I say right off. You can leave him in the garden, said Anathema. No, said Adam. He's got to do what he's told. I read it in a book. Training is very important. Any dog can be trained, it said. My father said I can only keep him if he's properly trained. Now, dog, go inside. Dog whined and gave him a pleading look. His stubby tail thumped on the floor once or twice. His master's voice. With extreme reluctance, as if making progress in the teeth of a gale, he slunk over the doorstep. There, said Adam proudly. Good boy. And a little bit more of hell burned away. Anathema shut the door. There had always been a horseshoe over the door of Jasmine Cottage, ever since its first tenant centuries before. The Black Death was all the rage at the time, and he'd considered that he could use all the protection he could get. It was corroded and half-covered with the paint of centuries, so neither Adam nor Anathema gave it a thought, or noticed how it was now cooling from a white heat. Aziraphale's cocoa was stone-cold. The only sound in the room was the occasional turning of a page. Every now and again, there was a rattling at the door when prospective customers of intimate books next door mistook the entrance. He ignored it. Occasionally, he would very nearly swear. Anathema hadn't really made herself at home in the cottage. Most of her implements were piled up on the table. It looked interesting. It looked, in fact, as though a voodoo priest had just had the run of a scientific equipment store. Brilliant, said Adam, prodding at it. What's the thing with the three legs? It's a theodolite, said Anathema from the kitchen. It's for tracking ley lines. What are they, then? said Adam. She told him. Cool, he said. Are they? Yes. All over the place? Yes. I've never seen them. Amazing there being all these invisible lines of force around and me not seeing them. Adam didn't often listen, but he spent the most enthralling twenty minutes of his life, or at least of his life that day. No one in the young household so much as touched wood or threw salt over their shoulder. The only nod in the direction of the supernatural was a half-hearted pretense, when Adam had been younger, that Father Christmas came down the chimney. Footnote. If Adam had been in full possession of his powers in those days, the young's Christmas would have been spoiled by the discovery of a dead fat man upside down in their central heating duct. He'd been starved of anything more occult than a harvest festival. Her words poured into his mind like water into a choir of blotting paper. Dog lay under the table and growled. He was beginning to have serious doubts about himself.
Anathema didn't only believe in ley lines, but in seals, whales, bicycles, rainforests, whole grain in loaves, recycled paper, white South Africans out of South Africa, and Americans out of practically everywhere, down to and including Long Island. She didn't compartmentalize her beliefs. They were welded into one enormous seamless belief compared with which that held by Joan of Arc seemed a mere idle notion. On any scale of mountain moving, it shifted at least 0.5 of an alp. Footnote. It may be worth noting here that most human beings can rarely raise more than 0.3 of an alp, or 30 centi-alps. Adam believed things on a scale ranging from 2 through to 15,640 Everests. No one had even used the word environment in Adam's hearing before. The South American rainforests were a closed book to Adam, and it wasn't even made of recycled paper. The only time he interrupted her was to agree with her views on nuclear power. I've been to a nuclear power station. It was boring. There was no green smoke and bubbling stuff in tubes. Shouldn't be allowed not having proper bubbling stuff when people have come all the way to see it and having just a lot of men standing around not even wearing spacesuits. They do all the bubbling after visitors have gone home, said Anathema grimly. Heh, <laughs> said Adam. They should be done away with this minute. Serve them right for not bubbling, said Adam. Anathema nodded. She was still trying to put her finger on what was so odd about Adam, and then she realized what it was. He had no aura. She was quite an expert on auras. She could see them if she stared hard enough. They were a little glow of light around people's heads, and according to a book she'd read, the color told you things about their health and general well-being. Everyone had one. In mean-minded, closed-in people, they were a faint, trembling outline, whereas expansive and creative people might have one extending several inches from their body. She'd never heard of anyone without one at all, but she couldn't see one around Adam. Yet he seemed cheerful, enthusiastic, and as well-balanced as a gyroscope. Maybe I'm just tired, she thought. Anyway, she was pleased and gratified to find such a rewarding student, and even loaned him some copies of New Aquarian Digest, a small magazine edited by a friend of hers. It changed his life. At least, it changed his life for that day. To his parents' astonishment, he went to bed early, and then lay under the blankets until after midnight with a torch, the magazines, and a bag of sherbet lemons. The occasional brilliant emerged from his ferociously chewing mouth. When the batteries ran out, he emerged into the darkened room and lay back with his head pillowed in his hands, apparently watching the squadron of X-wing fighters that hung from the ceiling. They moved gently in the night breeze. But Adam wasn't really watching them. He was staring instead into the brightly lit panorama of his own imagination, which was whirling like a fairground. This wasn't Wensleydale's aunt in a wine glass. This sort of occulting was a lot more interesting. Besides, he liked Anathema. Of course, she was very old, but when Adam liked someone, he wanted to make them happy. He wondered how he could make Anathema happy. It used to be thought that the events that changed the world were things like big bombs, maniac politicians, huge earthquakes, or vast population movements, but it has now been realized that this is a very old-fashioned view held by people totally out of touch with modern thought. The things that really change the world, according to chaos theory, are the tiny things. A butterfly flaps its wings in the Amazonian jungle, and subsequently a storm ravages half of Europe. Somewhere in Adam's sleeping head, a butterfly had emerged. 
It may or may not have helped Anathema get a clear view of things if she'd been allowed to spot the very obvious reason why she couldn't see Adam's aura. It was for the same reason that people in Trafalgar Square can't see England. Alarms went off. Of course, there's nothing special about alarms going off in the control room of a nuclear power station. They do it all the time. It's because there are so many dials and meters and things that something important might not get noticed if it doesn't at least beep. And the job of shift charge engineer calls for a solid, capable, unflappable kind of man, the kind you can depend upon not to make a beeline for the car park in an emergency. The kind of man, in fact, who gives the impression of smoking a pipe even when he's not. It was 3am in the control room of Turning Point Power Station, normally a nice quiet time when there is nothing much to do but fill in the log and listen to the distant roar of the turbines. Until now. Horace Gander looked at the flashing red lights. Then he looked at some dials. Then he looked at the faces of his fellow workers. Then he raised his eyes to the big dial at the far end of the room. 420 practically dependable and very nearly cheap megawatts were leaving the station. According to the other dials, nothing was producing them. He didn't say, that's weird. He wouldn't have said, that's weird, if a flock of sheep had cycled past playing violins. It wasn't the sort of thing a responsible engineer said. What he did say was, Alf, you'd better ring the station manager. Three very crowded hours went past. They involved quite a lot of phone calls, telexes, and faxes. Twenty-seven people were got out of bed in quick succession, and they got another fifty-three out of bed, because if there is one thing a man wants to know when he's woken up in a panic at 4am, it's that he's not alone. Anyway, you need all sorts of permissions before they let you unscrew the lid of a nuclear reactor and look inside. They got them. They unscrewed it. They had a look inside. Horace Gander said, There's got to be a sensible reason for this. 500 tons of uranium don't just get up and walk away. A meter in his hand should have been screaming. Instead, it let out the occasional half-hearted tick. Where the reactor should have been was in empty space. You could have had quite a nice game of squash in it. Right at the bottom, all alone in the centre of the bright cold floor, was a sherbet lemon. Outside in the cavernous turbine hall, the machines roared on. And, a hundred miles away, Adam Young turned over in his sleep.